Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. Uh, coming at you for show 130 something or other, and this is going to be a follow up on a video that I made uh, a couple a week ago on the data series and L. Ron Hubbard's uh, take on logic and reason and investigations and how to do analysis. This is, uh, I said in that video that that was really just a, a primer or primer, however you say it, for um, j- just, the, just the most basic analysis or look at the data series and there are there were um we're just going to dive right into this here there were and i and i'm joined this week <laughs> by jeff wassell and john p capitalist hi guys thanks for being on board to help with this hello chris hey we're glad to be here awesome okay and ignore the bad haircut uh I, for those of you who are watching on youtube with video uh it's uh not my fault i swear okay well, not not on purpose. So, as far as the data, getting back to the data series, um, there are 51 policy letters that L. Ron Hubbard wrote that constitute the data series. He started writing it in 1970, and it was, you know, there were issues coming out all the way through the 70s, um, but it was basically a completed body of work, basically by 72, 73, somewhere around there. And one thing that I didn't really talk about a lot, because we just didn't have the time to get into it in the video that I made, is that the ultimate product or or the thing that the data series gives a Scientologist or gives an, a manager is the ability to do an investigation, to, to pull strings, figure out what's going on, things that don't make sense, follow that, that little data trail down until you discover why something isn't working or isn't producing the result you want, or conversely, follow down a series of, of, of information to find out why something is doing well, if it's doing really good, if it's had a sudden surge in, in production or, or, uh, or, or beneficial, you know, whatever, then, uh, then you would do an analysis, which would be called a, a plus point analysis to figure out and strengthen the cause of whatever that that surge came from. Uh, Hubbard calls those affluences, uh, the affluence. You want to reinforce the affluence. Uh, But most, most of the time, I was the only person the entire time that I was in Scientology, I was the only guy I ever met who did a plus point analysis of a situation when I was in management. Most of the time we were doing data series evaluations or what we'll just call evals or evaluations. Uh, to find the cause of why something was not going well or was not going right. And that's basically how it's used. And from a few people that I heard from after putting that video out who had been data series evaluators in Scientology, they let me know that I was completely off base and that I had uh, that, that it was totally workable and, and a wonderful system. But I'm going to stick to my guns on this because I'm pretty sure that I actually know what I'm talking about on this subject. Yeah, the TLDR, you know, response to that is if this stuff was so great and this has been out there for 40, almost 50 years now, if this stuff was so great with all those wise consultants going around and talking to chiropractors and veterinarians and whatnot, if this stuff worked, it would be in use everywhere. General Electric would throw out their internal methodologies and they would be embracing it. (laughs) 
in the, there would the, be the six sigma <laughs> any kind of six sigma or business process reengineering would be hubbardian hubbardian <laughs> at the end of the day which is unreal unbelievable but there you are yeah it's yeah it's i i find it remarkable that people who've been out of scientology for a while and that have some experience in the real world would continue to believe that the data series has any meaningful ability to produce results whatsoever. Yeah, that's uh, that's what they're out there saying. So as per our plan, we have put together some outlines of a few podcasts that we're going to do where we're going to break this down and deconstruct this even further. Because like I said, 51 issues, there's a lot of information to digest. And I feel that and actually all of us, and having talked about this, feel that this is important to, one, look at how L. Ron Hubbard himself thought and looked at things and how he went about doing problem solving. And two, this provides a lot of insight into some of the decisions uh, on, an, or on a macro level that Scientology has made, both under L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige, that have contributed to why Scientology is such a toxic brand uh, PR wise why it why its practices and its and its efforts are are, are have, have resulted in so little despite so many people over so many years putting in so much work I mean there are very few people in the world who work harder than Sea Org members <laughs> and while they might be working on a you know, on a wrong tangent, doing the wrong stuff, they work their asses off. And all of that work is wasted because the, uh, the managers of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard and then David Miscavige, make extremely poor decisions about how to utilize that work. You know, you could, you, the, the Sea Org is capable of amazing things if it were actually properly utilized. I look at disaster relief efforts, for example. If they were really doing what they claim to be doing, you would see a, almost a whole different world in some ways. But they don't do any of that stuff. They lie through their teeth about what they're doing. And so we're going to look at this data series to look at the decision-making processes that go on behind the scenes. And that's, that's my purpose for having brought this whole thing up in the first place and wanting to uh, engage with Jeff and, and uh, John P. on this. So... Without further ado, uh, we have some background to cover in terms of Scientology and Scientology management. Um, it's hard to talk about, and that's the purpose of this podcast this week, it's hard to talk about the decision-making process and, and what L. Ron Hubbard was doing and what David Miscavige is doing later on without understanding some background of Scientology itself and how it grew itself and what is some of its activities were and what L. Ron Hubbard was up to. And there's a, there's a key period of time, a few years prior to the data series being written that, that I have to lay some groundwork for in order to uh, dig into some of the details of, of how this whole thing works. And I thought that some of these details and some of this history might be fascinating to some of you guys out there because um, it certainly fascinated me for a number of years. <laughs> Uh, now, as far as, um, and I want to get your guys' input on this, as far as Scientology goes, I mean, it kind of grew organically. Um, you know, Hubbard just wrote these books, and then he was publishing them, and then people were coming to him, and there were lectures, and, and then he got on this lecture circuit and holding congresses biannually and, um, and training 
Scientology auditors or counselors in what to do. But by the late 50s, Hubbard had himself an international organization. He had churches of Scientology around the world. I think by 1960 and through the 60s, there were something like uh, 13 to 15 organizations. They've, they've grown tremendously since then through the 70s and 80s, and now they're, now they're shrinking. But, uh, but this, this whole period of time we're talking about was a growth period. So in 1959, Hubbard establishes what's called the Church of Scientology Worldwide, or WW. And that was concurrent with him moving to England and buying up the St. Hill property in East Grinstead. And that is the place where he ran Scientology internationally by installing a state-of-the-art telex system at the time. This was, this was latest and greatest tech. And he had these telexes installed at the other end in, these, in, in all of the churches. And that was how they communicated. So you had an ability to, to give orders and receive information and, and, and do it in a rapid fashion. If it's anything like what I've seen in the military, it's actually rather expeditious, you know, because it's, it's, it's real time, right? And you can message mm -hmm. anywhere relatively inexpensive, and it doesn't run on the same backbone to some extent that a phone exchange does. So it tends to be, you know, easy, more easy to route. I did want to bring up one point to your historical arc here is that, yeah, and yeah. As, as we've discussed, um, I think it's critical kind of the pre-Mary Sue and post-Mary Sue evolution that really got him to, to the point where he was competent enough to leverage St. Hill. So if we look at the idea of management, you know, he, was, he couldn't herd cats up until Mary Sue came into the picture. You know, mm -hmm. we talked about when they moved down to Phoenix and after he, you know, he's what, he's been bankrupt two or three times. He's actually lost the trademarks. So all of a sudden he gets somebody in his life that's organized. And I think when we look at what the data series or the precursor to the data series, all this stuff that he's doing is he's trying finally he's getting his arms around what he's got. You know, he's, he's monetizing this thing more efficiently He's leveraging the resources he has. He's got organic growth, as you mentioned. But more importantly, he's got somebody that has a clue on how to make this thing work. So I think, you know, he's observing the way she's operating, the way she's delegating. So I would submit, or I'd argue, if you will, that a lot of what we're going to talk about here, getting up to this stage of the codification or the formalizing of perhaps Mary Sue's or the processes that he witnessed to get him to the point where St. Hill was the size it was, and he was able to manage it while he was just at sea and all these other things were the result of a lot of trial and error. And so what he's done is he's codified that trial and error now. So what we're going to talk about here is I think him turning around and saying, okay, wow, now that I got a handle on this, let me put it down and let's also see how well it works out in the real world and not only running Scientology, but, you know, maybe taking over some little small principality or what have you because now I've got this horsepower, I've got this, this organizational horsepower to do so. And I just remembered, by the way, that Telex stood for uh, telephone exchange. Exchange, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, so. yeah, it was essentially it was essentially a separate telephone network that was used only for sending information. Yeah. I think, you, you know, for people who aren't old computer geeks like uh, Jeff and I, um, you can think of Telex as a very primitive early form of email where people didn't have email addresses, but telex machines had phone numbers. And yeah. 
you essentially would send a message from one machine to another machine, and then at the end, at the other end, the person would take the message off. But it worked a lot like email, I think, is the best way to think. And of it. it's really, it's highly secure, too. It's how he moved most of his money back in those days. He could send a telex to somebody in Switzerland or Liechtenstein or what have you and move money without having to send a Sea Org mule, basically, to go do the same transaction. So it also, you know, it provided him a high degree of um, what I would call OPSEC or operational security in, you know, his affairs, as it were. So, you know, this was, again, his intelligence mindset, his his covert, his conspiracy mindset saying, you know, I'm not going to pick up the phone. I'm going to send a telex. Hubbard didn't particularly enjoy doing management no. uh, from the from what I've gleaned from his messengers and people who were around him during that time period. Um, he started, you know, he sets up this worldwide thing and he is then accumulating staff members. I mean, there's people coming to England to learn Scientology under him. And he's doing this long course called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course and, and hosting these students at his home, the St. Hill Manor. And he is also running Scientology internationally, but he's trying to figure out how to get himself out from under it the whole mm -hmm. time, I think. Yeah. Uh, based on his own comments about that as well. And when you watch, and here's the sequence of events on it. In 1965, uh, Hubbard gave a lecture called or Org Board and Livingness. And Org Board stands for Organizing Board. And this is where he publicly announces a new way of organizing the organizations. And, and it's a structure. Like It's not, he, he contrasts it with a command chart. He says, this isn't a command chart. This right. is an organizing board. It flows. It's, you know, you have things flow through it. And, uh, and, he, and you sort of picture an organization as a kind of production line where things go, you know, particles, people, mail, communications come in you know, step by step, move through the steps of the organization or the, the areas or divisions of the organization and come out the other end better than they were before or changed however the organization is supposed to change them. And he said that he had adopted, you know, he'd put a lot of thought into this, done a lot of drawings and figure outs and trying to, trying to figure out how to make this work. And he uh, then claimed in this lecture that the system he came up with, with the seven division organizing board, was based on an old galactic civilization that uh, had run, that it had two billion people in this organizing structure that it was accounted for, and that this system was such that you could have three people or three billion people on, and it wouldn't matter, it would grow, it would accommodate that, and the structure would remain the same. And he, he was definitely patting himself on the back for his, his, his genius on this, because he said that even though this organizing board had been pulled from his whole track recall from you know, all these millions of years ago, that they had not even run it properly, and that he had figured out what they did wrong with it because they didn't have a, a quality control and correction division as part of it. And that is part of the Scientology organization. I think he just copied operations research from the Chinese army is what he did. Because <laughs> <laughs> just... remember the whole operation, operations research, right? Post-World War II, we're going to figure out a way that we can put a structure in our organization, right? So you got all these guys from RAND and all these think tanks looking at org board, exactly what we're talking about here. But I mean, the scale, I mean, it's ludicrous. Anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead, JP. 
Yeah, no, it's just, you know, the, the rule of management. And I have invested in companies ranging from small startups with 20 people in them all the way up to companies on the size of Microsoft and IBM and all of the, you know, giant tech companies. And I, you know, one of the things that we look at as investors is, you know, how is management able to manage growth in the organization? And after doing this for a very long time, I can tell you there are no rules. There is no magic one size fits all solution for how to run a company that is so ludicrous on its face. I don't think any consultant, even the ones who were trying to, you know, tease apart, you know, how should you manage these increasingly large corporations? I don't think they ever believe that for a second. And so if you look at, you know, but, but all of those management consultant experts, you know, Peter Drucker, these, these famous names from the fifties and sixties, all of those guys were trying to solve real problems. Hubbard wasn't really trying to solve any problems with this organizational theory. I mean, yeah, he was trying to run Scientology, but he had this hidden agenda, which was by coming up with a one-size-fits-all, foolproof, guaranteed-to-work solution, once again proven that he's the smartest guy ever. Right. That's right. So, And I think paradoxically, to, to JP's point, is that the biggest thing to handle, what'll make or break a company, is how you manage scale, right? And yet, defining scale is always very—it's—it's it's relative to the size of the firm, highly subjective based on the market, all these different factors. And here's Hubbard is already built in, as we'll talk about, confirmation bias into the system and a way of thinking that will eliminate any understanding of how you would even conceptualize scale, let alone how you would do it in a way that would benefit an org all the way up to Scientology as a whole. Because Scientology has never gotten scale. Even to this day, it has. It knows how to build. It knows how to go big and say what expansion's about. But it doesn't know how to scale in a way that is beneficial to the organization because it's locked in this mindset of one individual telling you how to do one thing a certain way all the time with no contextual understanding of any other permutation that could alter the way that that particular event needs to occur, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And those, are, those are good points. And the proof really is here. I mean, you know, people can, from ex-Scientologists or people who look at the organizing board or look at this information can go, well, this looks like it makes sense. This looks like it should work. Or, well, Hubbard's system, of course it works. But the proof is in the pudding. Look at Scientology. <laughs> like, look at the organizations. Look at the wise groups where they consult businesses who are not Scientology organizations. These are not thriving, successful, like, you know, booming, scaling organizations. They are barely puttering along. So, uh, you know, so that's what I always fall back to on this stuff. Now, after doing that, about a year later, in March of 66, Hubbard went off to Rhodesia for four months. And this is, I think, the time where he was really getting to feel uh, cloistered at St. Hill. And he was wanting to get out and he was wanting to uh, also deal with some of the international problems his organization was experiencing because he had been, um, I think by this point or shortly hereafter, started getting tipped off to the fact that the IRS was not happy with what was going on with Scientology in terms of his tax exemption. Nor were the Brits. Everybody was looking at them, right? That's now. right. Well, they never had tax exemption in Britain. Right. They did have it uh, at this time in the United States, but they lost it. And the IRS was, was very seriously investigating 
uh, Scientology, and they found that they gave him a heads up. They said, "Hey, look, man, this is enormous. What's going on here? You have per you are personally profiting from this organization to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which of course then now scales to millions of dollars." I think and I was alluding, Chris. I was alluding more to. Uh, you know, there was a lot of back channel between MI6, MI5, and the FBI and the IRS about oh, yes. Hubbard's behavior rather yes. you know, than actual tax things. And, of course, you know, his money laundering on the continent, money laundering in, down in, you know, the ABCs in the Caribbean. By this time, he's looking at, you know, setting up OTC in the Panama and in, in the Panamanian uh, banking world. So, you know, he's already been, you know, identified. He's on Interpol's radar as that's right. somebody that's doing hinky stuff. That's right, which this Rhodesia trip only exacerbated because he Absolutely. goes down there for four months, ostensibly gives them a new constitution that they could perhaps use and tries to make nice with the, with the local bureaucracy. But after four months, they're like, yeah, no, you got to get out of here. We're not, we don't trust you. We don't like what you're doing here, and we're not renewing your visa. So back he goes to England, and sh very shortly thereafter, like within a month, He's buying a, uh, a boat called the Enchanter, and he begins preparing to go to sea. Well, you know, back up. Here's another thing to think about. Here he's rejected. He's a pariah in a pariah state. This is what's really I think about the, the context here. Ian Smith is consolidating power. You know, Rhodesia is probably at the time emblematic of all that was wrong with this sub-Saharan Africa. You know, it's the last, it and South Africa are the last two bastions of, I wouldn't say white, white supremacy in the, the, you know, the American racial context, but more the idea of the great white colonial rule, right? And so he goes down there, and he's always had racial pretensions anyway. You know, the guy has always been a closet racist to some extent. And he's going to figure out, here's this nice little white utopia that I can leverage for my own little fiefdom and use it to do what I am, you know, whatever, right? And, you know, to the point about um, that we'll discuss later, the, the document he's issuing at this time about world peace, that thing is all about setting up a little principality uh, on the coast of North Africa that can then turn into an international settlement that rules the world. So this is his, you know, he's already starting his little plan of conquest based on racist pretensions. You know, and the gold, you know, the guys also, you got to remember how much gold he was moving at this time. Hubbard had, you know, roughly $25 million in gold he had access to, according to Hannah and other people that I've talked to and just kind of the lore at the time. He was very much into, because you can move it. Remember, he was big on cash. He did not want to have assets that were easy to get on the radar. So he didn't use the banking system much. It was all about suitcases. It was all about couriers. It was all about assets. And you know, gold at that time, what a great place to go flip it into Krugerrands or whatever. You're in the one of the most ideal places that works on a strictly on a, on a metal, you know, on a metal-based economy, if you will. Interesting. So there was a lot going on around Rhodesia just besides him wanting to have a constitution. I think for him, it was an advanced base to do a lot of things financially, and I also think it was another way, you know, for him to get a shelter. You know, it's literally here. How about you know, what better tax shelter than a country, right? My lord. I mean, you could think Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, I, I wanted to, um, yeah, the whole thing about the Constitution and all that stuff, that was Hubbard's PR line. Sure. You know, that was, that was what he was telling everybody he was doing. Um, now, uh, JP, you also, you just recently published a blog article about this, 
this world uh, the world, the world peace document yeah yes world peace document how does that fit into this so so the world peace the world peace document was published in 1964 and unlike the communist psychopolitics document that Tony Ortega wrote about a couple months ago and it's been kicking around for a while that was published under an alias and it was essentially an attempt to discredit communism this was Hubbard and Scientology under their own name publishing a plan for world peace um, on my blog you there's a link you know there's a there's a copy of the document and you can look through it it's only about 10 or 12 pages it's a pretty easy read um, and it has a couple of things um, that are really, you know, designed that are sort of from the far left playbook, right? Like get rid of nuclear weapons, um, all the UN becomes one world government, you know, and the UN is the only trustworthy body, um, et cetera, et cetera. It also has some very far right kind of talking points like, um, you know, essentially that votes in the UN will be determined by national wealth rather than one country, one vote. So in other words, the U.S. and Great Britain and Germany basically get to rule the world because at the time they had well over 50% of global GDP. Um, and then there were a bunch of really interesting things that were greased in there that were of particular, you know, stacking the deck to favor Scientology. Um, and again, I document all of this in the blog post, but one of them was the idea that Nobody will make any regulation that defines what is orthodox science. Um, that should be left to individual scientists and their consciences. So in other words, people couldn't outlaw Scientology quack medical theories like Narconon, and they couldn't outlaw quack learning theories like study tech. Um, right. And so he greased a few of these into the plan in a way that was you know, approximately as delicate and nimble um, and and subtle as a hippopotamus dancing around high on meth, and right. and it was just you know it was just ludicrous. So the blog post really focused on the economic stuff, which is exactly what you would expect a bunch of eighth graders in a social studies class to come up with, left to their own devices. Just staggeringly naive and idiotic economic prescriptions. Um, anyway, wow. so but he had well, this know, whole vision. But but let me just let me just conclude. Let me just say, yeah. so why did he do this? And I think it's an open switch. And I think there are some other people that are going to be publishing some stuff soon about this, um, you know, putting in a little bit more context. But basically, the prescription for an international city where not only would the world government be headquartered, but all individual countries would be required to relocate their capitals to foster cooperation. Well, when you start to look at this in the light of the actual maneuvers that he went on in Rhodesia and Malawi and, and Morocco and on and on and on. Um, he was trying to essentially stack the deck so it would be easy for him to waltz in and take over. Right. So his initial fantasy was essentially that he was going to sell people on some, you know, even just some of these policies and it would make it easy for him to come barreling in and essentially have, you know, a seat at the table of how the world was run. So this is, you know, delusional in in terms of what he was proposing, in terms of, you know, just no concept of any blowback, much less the fact that nobody would want to give up their own sovereignty to the degree that Hubbard's proposing just because it's a good idea. You know, it, it was just insane. So, but it was all, it was his first, I think, attempt to, 
you know, out of his megalomania say, you know, let me propose this structure that everybody, you know, since I'm such a genius at psychology and the mind, and I'm so smart at education with my study tech, and I know all about drugs and how to cure people from addiction, um, why not politics, you know, to go along with also all of my great musical abilities as well. Yes. Well, I will, I will have to note for those who pay attention to this kind of minutiae that the study tech and the Narcan and all that stuff came after. This actually was precursing all okay. of that. Okay. But, not, a, but not, an, still, not a big deal. I'm just, I'm just saying that yeah, it's, but it's, it's fascinating thought process, to me. You know. But it's this thought process of I've got a simple solution to a hard problem and you should thank me for it by you know, giving me a seat at the table. Exactly. So I also think there's something that we need to address here in that he's operating on two levels. I think he's he's trying to imply there's a certain, you know, this is a benign thing I'm doing. Because remember, a lot of stuff's going on in, in the world, you know, he's starting to get a lot of negative press about Scientology, right? So he comes out with this document that sounds relatively innocuous and, and hey, here's something, here's an alternative. You know, we're not evil people. We want the best for the world, right? Well, the thing that I find that's interesting is this is classic Hubbard as the intelligence operative. This is fifth column stuff. What he's trying to do is start seeding, as, as my colleague just talked about, the idea in second and third world nations of, you know, the benign coup, if you will. You know, here's something that I can come in and I can help you do, right? This is what Scientology can offer you that the UN maybe can't. Or I've got, you know, resources. I mean, he, this guy was, again, he's flush right now. So he could waltz into a place like this and do a lot of damage with uh, an open pocketbook. So I think there's also a sinister back, you know, this is also a plan, you know, it's not as, you know, this, I don't want to say some galactic world plan for world domination. It's not that overt. I think it's a lot more subtle in the way that this could be perceived is him trying to uh, safe point Scientology in a way to the world at large by saying, hey, World peace, good stuff. Oh, by the way, you know, you third world and second world countries that want a little bit of help, look what Scientology can do for you from an economic standpoint. And he was wanting to do and use Rhodesia or Malawi or Morocco as a lab, a case study, if you will, that he could then turn around and duplicate in other parts of the sub-Saharan, hell, for that matter, you know, around the Mediterranean. What's what's to say that was, you know, the, one of the, the things that he certainly was thinking about when he went around in his little navy, you know, and did his right. work, right? That's, that, and, and we're going to get to some of that, actually, because that's the, what you're talking about is exactly what he did and he tried it in a couple places and Rhodesia was the first place he went to the beach he, he thought it would be a place that they could potentially relocate Scientology management it would be a place that he later referred to as he went down there to check if he could create an OT base in Rhodesia right but he found, but he he blamed his failure on not having a group behind him that he said alone OT can't go out and conquer a group of lesser beings who are better organized than that lone individual. And that is why he, he says he failed in Rhodesia. Which is one of the reasons why the Sea Org was even, you know, that this is one of the things he would tell Sea Org members to get them sure. to, to get to, to pump up their loyalty and, and convince them how, how uh, benign and wonderful and, and amazing they all were. Uh, now we're going to move on because there's, there's so much going on at this time period and so many things to talk about, but we have a trail to follow and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us back onto that. Um, 
August 66, he goes and he buys a, a boat and he's, and he's fitting it up. And in September, next month, he announces that he resigns as the executive director and he takes on the title of founder of Scientology. He had been personally running not just St. Hill, but every org in the world, which was about 13 or 14 orgs at this time, as their executive director on that organizing board, the, the, the head chief. And he was now turning that over to a body of people that he had trained up at St. Hill who were worldwide, worldwide management, Church of Scientology worldwide. And in October, he starts the Sea Project. And he, get, he, he purchases the first boat, and he, and he says one of the secondary goals of this project is to see if, if worldwide needs to be relocated away from St. Hill because of all the heat that MI6, MI5, the, the, you know, the IRS are bringing. I mean, he's not unaware of what's going on. And he's basically jumping ship from St. Hill at this point. He's turning things over, and he's doing it pretty quickly. I mean, we're talking about a couple months now. And, so it's uh, also, I'd like to interject here, this is yeah. where, I, there's a thesis that I ran in a, in a series I'm doing right now on how Scientology has evolved as a criminal organization. This is where he starts taking deliberate steps to isolate the organization from legal scrutiny by using international law. So, you know, when you're at sea, you can do a lot of stuff that you obviously can't because you're under a completely different umbrella, if any, at that time. Certainly, you had none of the, the laws around money, taxes, all the stuff to the extent you do now. So he was very, I mean, it was a very shrewd move when you think about it. Plus, what better way to curry your large amounts of money than have your own Navy, right? So, right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, transitional period, I feel, in, in Hubbard's mindset. I think he's looking at, you know, this is the transition from religious founder to crime boss. Here's the empire. How do I build it? How do I start expanding it in a way that's below the radar, yet certainly leverages the, the ground I've already laid, you know, in, in all these different places? Big time. Okay, so moving on. So in October, he's got these people refurbishing a boat up in Hull in England, and he has... Um, December, come December now, just just two months later, he gives the last lecture of the St. Hill Special Briefing Course. This is something he's been doing since 1960. He's been doing lectures twice a week to all these students, uh, except, of course, when he, you know, goes off on vacation or to Rhodesia or, you know, goes and, and figures out how to <laughs> run his, his, his international criminal organization. In his vault. <laughs> right. But pretty much he's been lecturing to these students and maintaining this, this thing. And he's been, and he's been a busy little beaver because all this time he has been writing all of the ethics policies of Scientology, the organizing policies that we have been talking about with the organizing board and putting this whole system in place. He's sort of re he's created this whole system uh, and so, and after Rhodesia, he started getting really serious about the whole concept of the antisocial personality, mm -hmm. the SP. This is when, this is the time period when the SP is invented by Hubbard. Um, I mean, everybody, you know, people know about antisocial personalities, criminals, psychotics, but he comes up with his own brand of it and he calls it a suppressive person. And he says that they have the technical means to be able to undo this, but these people are so bad off and horrible and ripping up everybody else up that, they, that he really doesn't care too much about them. So then he leaves St. Hill for North Africa, December 1966. 
Now, two months later, in 67, he writes The Responsibility of Leaders, which is that policy you took apart recently, Jeff. Yes, he does. So this fits into this time. You know, a lot of things that we've been talking about fit into this. So to that, he's already establishing this us versus them mentality, right? The idea of the SPs, you know, the blame chain. And then he outlines why this is so important in the responsibilities of leaders. He says, listen up. This is how you need to treat me as a head honcho, but this is the stuff you got to look out for that's going to subvert this little wonderland we're building, right? You know, the ruthlessness, the, the willingness to die for me, literally and figuratively, and all this stuff. So, again, you're seeing this a transition from this benign save the planet thing into this, this whole survival mentality, us versus them, the ability to identify threats or projections or scapegoats, whatever, as a means to consolidate the organization and instill a different sense of discipline, I think. You know, the, this, this, this ends justifies the means becomes kind of the, the MO, the, the, the modus operandi for the sea or anybody that's in Hubbard's orbit. I think it's very important that this, because it's all coming together here, isn't it? You know, he's written all this stuff. He's got this idea in his mind. Now I'm going to see how this thing works with a ruthlessness that he, I don't think he had before. It, that's exactly right. And the, and the word ruthless is actually a key word here because this is how he ran this C project and, and yep. how he ran what became the C organization. Uh, that's, our, that's our next stop, in fact, because in, uh, in February, he writes Responsibility of Leaders. In March, he discovers OT3, the Xenu mm. narrative. All this is when it happens, right in the middle of all this. And this is in Las Palmas in North Africa. Uh, this area of the, of the world is where he's gone off to. And, uh, and then he's got these sea project guys up there refitting these ships, and then they're going to come down and join him in Africa. And by August of 1967... He has uh, decided on August 12th, in fact, that the Sea Project is now going to become the Sea Organization. And he makes it official. And he says, anybody who wants out, time to go, because this now shit gets even more real. <laughs> and, we're, and we're now doing this. This is now the Sea Organization. And we're doing and the whole naval thing and the uniforms and the lanyards and the ships. They, they are full, fully into it now. Um, he's got these, and, and all these people are OTs. They are fully dedicated Scientologists. These are not made. people off the street. <laughs> these are made. This is the made men. This is uh, we're talking. This is this is the this is the enforcers now, man. We got it. That's Hubbard's right. Got his mob. I can see. You know, I, somehow I can't see Hubbard saying, "I'm going to make you an offer you cannot refuse." I can sort of see Miscavige with the Philly accent doing that, but yeah. not Hubbard. Yeah, he was. He well, was if he did, he would be the well, <laughs> well, what he did do is he appointed himself commodore. Yep. That was the rank that he gave himself. He says, "I'm I'm the commodore now, and I've got." And this is this is where the management thing starts starts forming up again. Now, remember, he had resigned as the executive director a year before in September '66, and he had ostensibly turned everything over. And he wasn't running Scientology anymore. Oh, no, I'm not doing that. That's, I've turned it over to very good people, very good hands, and they're going to run things, and I'm going to go off, and I'm going to do this high-level research. This is what he's telling people. Sure. So, Plausible however, liability. <laughs> yeah, well, 
because within a year he's got this Sea organization now set up. He is describing the Sea Org to the rest of Scientology as, and to the Sea Org members themselves as the aristocracy of Scientology. This is the wording that he's using when he's talking about you guys. You guys go out there to these orgs. You're going to be red carpeted and lionized and treated like the aristocracy of Scientology that you are. So he's building them up at the same time that he's treating them like complete shit, at the, you know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, now, important here is that as part of the organization of his little flotilla, as he called it, uh, is that he started selecting some of these Sea Org members as his personal staff. And they became known as Commodore's staff. And this is not just stewards and cooks, but people who are actually servicing him to run this flotilla of ships. And he's training them on how to be ship people at the same time that he's doing all of this. Um, now, also, okay, now we move forward to 1968. And in addition to all of this that's going on, because he has now researched OT 1, 2, and 3, as they are being called, this is the top of the bridge at that time. The Xenu narrative was as far as it went. This is hush-hush uh, stuff. This isn't being delivered at every Scientology church in the world. They, Scientologists have to come to Hubbard to learn this advanced stuff. He's not even giving it out at St. Hill. So he's got a boat called the Royal Scotman. Uh, you, you'd think it would be the Royal Scotsman, but they left yeah. the S off when they, yeah. when they registered it. So it's the Royal Scotman. And this is now the first advanced organization of Scientology where they're going to deliver these OT levels. And so people have to come to him, and um, they are, and they set this up on the Royal Scotman. And this is, I think, at this time in Morocco. And Scientologists are now flying to that ship to deliver, to, to be delivered these upper level services. It's kind of a great Meanwhile, irony that, it was, that it's a re reconfurbed cattle. Yeah, that's right. It's, a, it's, a, it's literally a boat that so we can bilk them, right? That's right. It's literally a boat that would that would. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Oh my God! Some of the stuff here. Yeah, yes, the cattle. Yeah, the, the, the sheeple are arriving. So anyway, cattle ferry. That's he, that's what. It now Hubbard's not even there because to put even more things into context, this is the time, January 1968 when Hubbard is sailing around the Mediterranean on another boat called the Avon River, yeah. doing his mission into time, where he's testing whole track recall by looking for buried treasure that he claims he can recall where it's located, you know, in Italy or Sicily or wherever they were, they were trying to dig this stuff up. So he's off doing that while people are arriving for these OT levels. And then, a couple months later, we talk about the responsibility of leaders and how Hubbard claimed that he could, you know, out Bly, Captain Bly. Well, this is when chain locker punishment starts being instituted. And, and in May of 68 is when the first overboards start happening, where he's like throwing people overboard because they screw up on something. And uh, he is really lucky this whole time that nobody died doing that yeah. because there were some really close calls. Now, another important thing that happened here, though, is by May of 68, Hubbard writes a policy letter where he recombines worldwide management with the St. Hill organization because they had been two separate 
things. When the management was just supposed to manage, and St. Hill was a delivery organization, but he administratively and financially rejoined them in May of 68 because he said that the worldwide management group was overstaffed and not particularly producing adequately. So he still, this is just, you know, and, and there's a, a couple of reasons why I bring that up. One of them being that Hubbard is not disconnected from what's going on with management or with what he's left behind him. He is still very much keeping his finger on the pulse of what's going on, uh, even though he ostensibly had resigned as the ED. Uh, and with his, and even though he'd resigned as the ED, he clearly kept the power to write Hubbard to write policy for the organization, because that's how he implemented his what he wanted the organization to do. Is he would write a policy letter and ship it out there, and they were expected to act on it. So, so he's still breaking those out. If we're talking about management and leadership, right? And this is the here's where the the responsibility of leaders comes um, uh, comes in as an interesting thing is that if you look at the malevolent, there was a, a very a deliberate malevolence behind all the overboarding and all that because it's a great way to establish the degree of of loyalty and also uh, ruthlessness that you want around you, both to implement as well as exemplify your leadership style. That's so right. you have Hubbard now saying, okay, I'm going to put these policies in place, but I want to see just how people, how far people are willing to go to do what I tell them to do in these policies. So now you're getting the mindset in Scientology, this ruthless determinism, the absolutism that comes, I mean, to this day, right? It's, it's, it's inviolate. You know, this is written in stone. But, you know, even though you don't have people being thrown overboard, you've got disconnection, you've got miscavige, you know, as severe reality, all of the, the violence and all the other dysfunctional organizational behavior that's a hangover from this period, I feel. You know, oh, very because, much so. This is when it was born. This is when Scientology This changed. is the... This is the genesis of the mindset, the culture. The culture in Scientology, I think, comes from this period. So I think it's really important people understand that. And it's the same thing in criminal organizations. The ruthlessness of an organization is top-down. It's not bottom-up. You know, the Carlo Gambinos, the Albert Anastasias, the Lucky Lucianos, those guys ruled by iron fists based on intense, intense loyalty Based, you know, backed up by this rampant violence, and this is what Hubbard's doing. He's saying, "I'm a violent son of a bitch," and this is why. But you know, I'm going to be your salvation, so you owe me this. Prove it. Push a peanut around the deck. Jump off the damn boat. Go that's right. That's gun, right? that's right. That's Thanks. when all this is happening. And this is also noteworthy. Also, by the way, for those of you guys out there who have seen the black and white interview of L. Ron Hubbard on the ship, where his teeth are so bad and. <laughs> and it's called The Shrinking World of L. Ron Hubbard, that was filmed right here at this time in July 1968. So, uh, so this, anyway, so that's the sort of the, the context of that. Uh, that was the last public interview, filmed interview, Hubbard ever gave, too. Yeah, interesting. So then in, in August 68 is when uh, the Advanced Organization of L.A. and St. Hill Organization in America are established. So he's, so people don't just have to go to the, Royal Scotman in, in America, they can go there, and, he's, and he sets up an organization to deliver these upper-level services. And um, 
By September 68 is when the Class 8 course is delivered in Corfu aboard the Royal Scotman. He's overboarding the students who are coming for this highest level training. These are the Class 8 auditors. These are the highest tech trained Scientology counselors or auditors you can have anywhere in the world. A bunch of people show up to, this, to, the, to the boat to do this training. And he's treating them just as badly as he's treating the Sea Org members. Uh, so by 69, by March of 1969, they get kicked out of Corfu. Like, leave. Get out. We don't want you here. He had been, now Corfu's in Greece. Hubbard had been pulling the same scam in Corfu that he had been pulling in Rhodesia. And in other places that they had been sailing around too, trying to take over, trying to ingratiate themselves with the locals, trying to actually get into the government. And, uh, and he had been, his movements and, and, and his activities had been being followed by the CIA and the FBI and various, and Interpol. And these organizations were talking to each other behind the scenes. And they started talking to the Greek government because the Greek government's kind of going, hey, guys, uh, you guys know anything about these people? And they go, oh, yeah, we know a few things. And so this ended up with them getting kicked out. And I'm grossly oversimplifying the whole story. Yeah, but it's just the Portuguese, you got everybody and their brother was just up in arms about the whole thing, right? That's right. You can and, track the production around the mouth of the Mediterranean. <laughs> yeah, and they get kicked out and they never go back into the Mediterranean. They actually nope. leave, and, nope. and, and for all the years after this, Hubbard never went back in. He stayed nope. out and sailing around between Portugal and Madrid, mainly, were the ports of call that they mainly had at this point. Um, now we come to the data series. So we get to 1970. Now Hubbard's got, at this point, uh, something that has to be commented on is uh, he has not remained standoffish at all about the churches of Scientology. He has been sending Sea Org members out to these places randomly as far as the churches are concerned and as far as management is concerned, because management's supposed to be worldwide. Yeah. But Hubbard keeps sticking his nose into what's going on, and he's sending these Sea Org members out. Now, everything we've talked about is relevant here because he's trained these Sea Org members in being ruthless, in demanding compliance, in that the correct attitude to have is that these people need to be plowed over because if they're not following my, my policies, according to L. Ron Hubbard, if they're not following my tech, according to L. Ron Hubbard, then they are out ethics. And that means that their reactive mind is making them do things that we need to bring enough force to bear to overcome their reactive mind. This is the theory of this, right? We've talked about this before. Yes. So, um, so these these people are called missionaires. They're going out on these missions, is what is what Hubbard calls them. And there's always two or more of them at a time. It's never one person going out. And these guys are doing things that are uh, meant to drive the income up. They go out there and they put a tremendous amount of pressure on the staff to make money. Well, they're uh, the enforcers. The That's Scientology right. has already been, always been, or the Sea Org has always been the enforcement arm of Scientology. Exactly. And to your point about money, it's interesting. I've had multiple conversations with old, what I would call the old guard about the amount of money mule activity Sea Org members undertook at this time frame. Either running money to Liechtenstein, Mon all, anywhere Hubbard had a presence. 
They were either going out on missions to make sure the money was being banked properly or invested properly, what have you. I mean, he was a very hands-on guy. Again, it goes back to this idea of secrecy, loyalty, omerta. You know, I mean, when you think about it, you know, the, 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 there, is, there is a penalty in Scientology if you keep your mouth if you don't keep your mouth shut, right? That's right. So, you know, and so here's this this network. And the thing is, is these people were committing crimes with not even a second thought about it, doing this stuff, too. They're forging passports. They're forging Hubbard's name on deposit slips or the actual, you know, creating false relationships between the church and banking, all at Hubbard's bequest. So here's that zealotry, right? That unbridled loyalty. The ends justify the means. Wog law be damned. Let's do it. What better way to manage an organization, right? A criminal organization. You know, this is where the management tech comes in. It inculcates the mentality that breaking the law is okay. Precisely. So, um, okay, so I, anyway, the, the point about the missions was important because it needed to be understood that Hubbard was all over these organizations during this time. He was not hands-off no, at all. And he was not consulting with WW in sending these missions out. In fact, another principle Hubbard prided himself on was what he called being Fabian. He was out at sea. <laughs> Nobody knew where you were. Nobody knew what you were up to. You could just appear at random, do whatever you did, and then disappear. And so I have he to called laugh, this being, being a Fabian. graduate of the London School of Economics that was founded by Fabian socialists. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you've got Fabians that are going to have to pick your pocket. Then you've got very benevolent Fabians that want to have a, you know, which is a, a form of socialism that wanted to bring you know, equal a, a Oxbridge education to working class London. So there's an Ox, you know, to me, there's a great paradox there between Hubbard, you know, his rich, you know, ideas. And here he is thinking, Fabian, I want to be a thief, right? You talk about a paradox. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he considered the, the height of strategy. Oh because, yeah, because uh, nobody would know where he was, and nobody know when you would appear. He He's said it. He it. said it gave the Sea Org um, a presence, right? Because they could just appear out of nowhere. You didn't know they were coming, and they show up, and they they give you all these intense, high pressure orders, and you get them done or else. And if you don't, then we're going to revoke your Thetan. You know, we're going to like. Well, it's also it's snitch culture, right? Snitch culture has always been a big thing in Scientology. Here's yet another iteration of it. And this is a time period when this is actually up and running now. This is, the, the, the knowledge reports and all these reports had been going Absolutely. for only a couple of years. But this whole system of filing those reports, that's part of what he set up before he left St. Hill. So by 1970, Hubbard has personal staff, his Commodore's staff, who are running, helping him run Scientology organizations. They are, and and but he's frustrated uh, because he doesn't like doing management in the first place. It was never his forte, and he knew it. And he, and he had a hard time organizing his way out of a wet paper bag, which is why he relied on Mary Sue and other people around him to do a lot of the grunt work and, and do a lot of the thinking work. But he was ostensibly the leader. He's the guy. So he's the founder. He's source. He's the guy who has to be the, the, the point of origination for all of this stuff. So he... In 1970, April 26th, the first issue of the data series comes out, 
where Hubbard goes, okay, you guys can't think because you've all been trained not to think by your piss-poor education and this declining culture that's going nowhere that we're trying to turn around, and you guys are not managing the way I want you to be managing, and so I'm going to teach you how to think. And, that's, and, and so comes the data series. And the first 20 issues or so of the series are written in 1970. Also at this time, to reinforce what I just said, Hubbard started an executive training program on his ship, which was now called the Apollo. And this is in July of 1970. So he starts writing this data series. He's also writing lots of other policies about finance and organization and being an executive and a leader. All of this stuff is coming out in a, in a torrent in 1970. And so he starts pulling executives from around the world to the ship to train them on the highest level executive training called the Flag Executive Briefing Course. And, uh, and these guys are supposed to show up already knowledgeable and already steeped in the policies he's already written. And now this is sort of like the postgraduate, you know, doctoral right. level executive right. training directly from L. Ron Hubbard. So then, also in 1970, so he, he's got all these people on board, he's training them, and he then reorganizes Scientology management, and he basically takes it all back. And he says, look, uh, we're, we're running things now. Um, and, he and he takes these Commodore staff, these seven people who, I talked about the organizing board earlier because it's divided into seven divisions. And he had an individual staff member responsible for each of those divisions in all the organizations internationally. So, um, and again, at this point, it's still only about, you know, it's less than 20 organizations around the world as far as I know. Uh, that's how far it's expanded. So roughly 140 so people at this point in time, Chris. Really, if you look at it, there's seven times one, seven times twenty. Uh, I mean, as far oh, as, as far as staff members. Yeah, the level, the level of executive management underneath Hubbard. I'm just trying to get a handle yeah. on. Okay. Yeah, and it, but he's got and and as far as these Commodore staff go, there's one staff member that represents each division of the Scientology org board. So he's got seven of them. He's, there's, there's Commodore Staff 1 for Division 1, or CS1, CS2, CS3, CS4. And these guys are supposed to now be using the data series to evaluate their divisions. Okay. And what Hubbard's original idea was to replicate the seven-division pattern right under, him, right under him on the ship. Sure. And... And so these guys would be able to uh, coordinate together, work together at that level, and issue policy and direction down the line to their opposite number divisions. Well, there's a certain logic to his uniformity, isn't there? I mean, you well, want there this, is. right? You know, and yeah. it's interesting when you read the data series, it's, it's, it's insidious in that you almost get sucked into the logic until you start reading about how it's executed, right? That's right. <laughs> That's, that's right. Where the, that's where the, the fallacy comes about. Exactly. The devil's in the details, as it were. Because <laughs> what happened was Hubbard had to acknowledge that this system, this opposite numbered system, was not working. No. Sending out random missions, and they weren't random. They were the result of evaluations that they'd been doing. But sending out these random Sea Org members, basically, to all these to the churches to do individual things that Hubbard wanted done 
wasn't it, it wasn't working scientology was it, it wasn't it wasn't a smooth well greased well oiled machine and hubbard was again very frustrated about this well, so would, he yeah I would, sorry, I, would just, I would just jump in and say you know what essentially is going on here is that hubbard realizes that all of the you know the mission you know fire quote firing the missions of these sending these sea org guys parachuting in was all reaction based uh, yeah, and, right. uh, interrupt. It's all interrupt. Right? And it's all it's all reaction based and you're never getting ahead of the eight ball. And so, you know, here's a guy who has absolutely no formal training in management. The only actual job he ever had, as opposed to, you know, the sort of penny ante grifts that he did for most of his life. The only job he had was in the Navy. And so, you know, he was so he he figures that, you know, the, the Navy is the only model he's got and he's on a boat. So he's going to do Navy things to be proactive. And of course, that's right. You know, that's, it, it, as we that's explore exactly, this. that's exactly what was going on now. And, um, by, okay. So, so then he also, at this point, actually I, I went a little out of sequence because November is when he does this whole management reorg and fully takes back management of Scientology under him. And he's the head of it now. Um, in August of 71, he disbanded, WW, in all of, it, it, for all intents and purposes, he had, he had disbanded the high, the top level of WW, which was called the Executive Council, and he issued this in a policy letter. Now we talk about the data series, and we're going to come right back to the data series right now with this, because when he disbanded the Executive Council WW worldwide, he he did it with a policy letter where he said that the organizations had been being what he called stat pushed. They were pushed to get numbers up, to, you know, to make stats happen, but there was no building of the organization or organizing of the organization or, or anything sensible like that. You just push, 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 push mm -hmm. for statistics and namely for one statistic, gross income, income yeah. money, right? Now he issues this, now he's been doing this as we laid out with these missions, these Sea Org missions, for a couple years now, you know, he, he leaves in 67, but he never really leaves. He's sending Sea Org members into these places, and they're demanding money, money, money. And then he has the nerve in 1971 to say, I'm disbanding the ECWW because they've been stat pushing these orgs and not making them deliver. And I have to come in and with the Sea Org and save the day. And he writes... Now, this is where it goes back to the data series. The data series is about finding a why, finding why something is the way that it is, and using all these out points and plus points to go down this investigative trail to find that out, as I laid out in my video. So Hubbard, in this policy, he says, and I, I can't wait to hear you guys' comments on this because I did not go over this with you before we started. <laughs> he says, the real why of any governing body failure when it is sincerely trying but failing is that it is operating on wrong whys. This, on review, was the true underlying failure of every sincerely active governing body or executive. There can be other whys. There can be no governing body at all. It can be corrupt. It can be only self-interested. And, as in the case of France, Poland, Austria, and Czechoslovakia in the late 1930s, and probably England in the 1960s, it can be infiltrated and subverted. But all governing bodies of Scientology organizations have been sincere and they have tried hard. 
This includes Executive Council WW. And the basic and only reason for failure was that they gave orders which did not match the situation into which the order was sent. They had no real data collection unit and depended on reports. They had no direct observation. Therefore, their estimates of the situation were faulty. There was no valid system of data analysis or logic known to man, and they would have erred anyway. Thus, they are totally exonerated of any evil intent or, even by human standards, incompetence. So he's basically giving them all a pass while at the same time... I was going to say a blanket amnesty or something, right? <laughs> that's, that, that's right. Wow. That's right. So what... So what do you guys think of what he's, what he's saying there? Well, I would just say, uh, Jeff, um, I think we need a synchronized face palm on the count of three. One, <laughs> two, I, I, three. Oh, my well, God. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the relevance of business metrics being compared to perhaps the Sudetenland or the invasion of Czechoslovakia on its face is ludicrous. I mean, you know, this is his classic you know, melding of all this disparate, you know, geopolitical slash, you know, business slash I know it all nonsense. So, and, and I'll, let, I'll let JP talk to the, the majority of this because it is about metrics. This is a thing, this, you know, outpoints and all this. What he doesn't do is, is figure out a way to define metrics so you can gauge performance, right? At the end of the day, this is what we're talking about. The data series is an attempt to evaluate the production or the performance of something, right? At least yeah. in theory. Uh, yeah, but when you read it, it's all anecdote. There's nothing that sits there and tells you how to baseline it. And when it does, it's surrounded by confirmation bias that doesn't allow for enough outlier thinking that you can account for risk, probability, all the different permutations that occur in, in organizational dynamics, business management. I mean, everything that you would, the whole milieu of organizational structure and management. You know, it's, it's ridiculous in it, on, on its face because of that. And I'm sure, you know, when JP's gone in to look at organizations that he's going to acquire something like that, they're very, there's a defined set of ways you evaluate something. And it's certainly not the way that you evaluate according to Hubbard. Well, there's a defined way that you look at stuff, but it's not a simplistic process like yes. what Hubbard is talking about. So if I'm looking at something, you know, it's like, yeah, I have some general guidelines for what I'm going to do, but the exceptions are usually where the money is made. You know, so the exceptions to my process for looking at investment or whatever. So, so you know, what's going on here, to go back to what Hubbard is saying, what's going on here is he's saying that, you know, if you just get to this one place of finding, quote, the wrong whys, then you'll be able to solve these problems. And at one conceptual right level, ones, yeah. yeah, if one conceptual level, you know, if you get rid of the wrong whys and you replace them with the right whys, you know, at a, at a conceptual level, well, yeah, that's kind of what you do when you're managing an organization. You figure out why stuff isn't working, and then you figure out what's going to, you make your best guess of what's going to work, and then you try and implement that the best you can. And, you know, but but what's happening with Hubbard's stuff and the reason that it, um, you know, it doesn't work and it disastrously doesn't work is not the high-level, you know, 50 mile view of the of this of this but it's the implementation of this concept and so you know what we've talked about you know in our prep discussions for these for these podcasts is the way that Scientology in the data series quote determines the wrong why or quote determines the right why is all screwed up 
and and it's all screwed up in a way that has absolutely no chance of ever succeeding, except for by accident occasionally. Well, also it incorporates conspiracy or like there's there's always you know to his point about well you know the fall of 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 Chuckles of all again going back to this geopolitical analogy. He's saying that because there was spying going on, there's some kind of infiltration or blah, blah, blah. Well, for the most part, your typical business organization isn't going to be susceptible to fifth column activity. Yeah, there might be some uh, you know, industrial espionage, but that's a whole different thing than organizational subversion, right? And he's saying that you know, the SPs or whoever, these, these, you know, the, the PTSs are at the heart of this as well. As we've talked about, he's always looking for, to project blame rather than figure out what the phenomena is that's causing the problem. It's usually all about pointing the finger at something or someone rather than just taking an objective look and saying, this is what we have, and rather than, it's, than blame, blame, blame. You know, there's, there's always got to be a, cons- in, in fixing any problem in business, there has to be ownership, right? And you define ownership based on a coherent structure, right? So right out the bat, you know, this obtuse org board is going to complicate things because, you know, the dotted lines, there's no definition about who really owns something. And then there's a whole other set about values, organizational ethos, the, 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 you know, the way that the, the organization thinks as a whole, the, the idea that it's inculcated. So if you look at Scientology, you're already going from a premise of suspicion, conspiracy, uh, blame the other guy. So it's dysfunctional from the get-go. So you're, then, you're getting this dysfunctional organization and you're bolting on top of it a whole completely incoherent way of assessing how dysfunctional the dysfunction is. That makes yeah. sense. And no, I, that's that's exactly right. Go ahead, go ahead, JP. And and what you're what you're essentially describing, Jeff, is Scientology in a nutshell, yeah. and it's also <laughs> fundamentalism and cults in a nutshell. Which is, right. when you're doing something that doesn't work, the only solution that you have is to do more of it, right? Yes. And so you know, to reinforce the dysfunction, <laughs> right? Because here's the thing, right? You know, I believe there's a thing in Scientology about more different and better, right? That those are how you get, that's the kinds of change that exist, right? So if something, if you don't like the way something is, do more of it or do something better or do something different. Well, in a cult, you can't do better or different because the doctrine is already perfect by definition. Right. So all you can do is more, which is insanity. So That's it's almost right. when you optimize, you're heretical. This is, a, you know, when, if you think about a great, the great cult paradox. And, you know, in most organizations, optimization is the, old, you know, that's what you want. But in a cult, if you're optimizing, it's heretical because it's antithetical to the dysfunction. The dysfunction feeds the belief system that keeps people in the cult, right? So oh, that's the minute interesting you, point. You know, when you start thinking yeah. logically to solve the problem, you're already starting to break down the permutations that made the cult what it is. Yeah, so, good point. Very yeah. good point. Well, on that note, uh, there are two points here that I want to bring up on this. What I do, The quotes that I just read from Hubbard in this policy letter where he disbands the executive council worldwide are really a breakdown of Hubbard's own failures because he was the one who was causing the stat push GI gross income things to go on. He was the one sending his goon missionaires out. And I heard a story that I'll, that I'll repeat here from a Sea Org member when I was in the Sea Org, who was around at that time, who told me that those missionaires, or at least one instance of it, and I, as far as I'm concerned, one is too many, 
going into one of these churches of Scientology where there's staff and regular public off the street and chaining, they brought chains and padlocks with them and they chained the Reg, the salesman, to his desk. Bloody hell. And said, you ain't getting out until you've made your quota. That's the kind of thuggery that these Sea Org missionaires were going out and doing. So, and that, I mean, that was told to me in a, you know, in a friendly Sea Org environment. That wasn't told to me by some harsh ex-critic making up a story because they had a, 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 an axe to grind. So if that's what these guys were running around doing, and then Hubbard has the nerve to blame EC Worldwide for this when he's the one sending his guys out to do this kind of activity and then he's and then he says in the same policy letter it's wrong wise that'll get you every time <laughs> i mean come on man you know could you like look in a mirror and on that point while i was doing some research this week on this on this stuff i talked to two of the uh women who were messengers for hubbard during this time period and we talked extensively about this time period. And I asked both of them directly and separately, at any time that you worked with L. Ron Hubbard, and they worked with him from the late 60s all the way through this time period, into the, through the 70s, into 1980, did you ever, ever, in any case, under any circumstances, see L. Ron Hubbard admit that he was wrong about anything? <laughs> anything at all. No. And both of them independently said, they thought about it, and they were both, not once, not once. Well, that goes yeah. back to his caliber, right? That just self-deter, that unbridled self-determinism. That you know, by God, I'm going to blow my name into the universe, whatever. You know, the the results be damned. He was incapable of any kind of self-reflection or self-actualization. I believe. Yeah, and, precisely. And, and that's 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 absolutely correct. Now, but let's back up and and let's sort of cast a sort of broader perspective on this. Um, you know, we can fall into diagnosing Hubbard's personality disorders, megalomania, narcissism, whatever you call it, doesn't matter what it is. This is absolutely characteristic of a cult leader anyway. The infallibility of the leader is an essential linchpin of the cult. And that's the whole purpose, right, to, you know, I mean, cults typically have three sort of goals, all of which go to the benefit of the leader. Either they're about sex, they're about money, or they're about power. You know, Scientology right. tends to be less about sex than, say, this Nexium bunch up in upstate New York that their founder got arrested. I wrote that blog post on about two weeks ago. And, you know, but, but it was, but, but if it's, you know, the leader is supposed to have you know, and the reason to believe in the cult's dogma is that the leader has special magical abilities to discern truth that everybody else in the world has missed. And so essential an essential part of that is never admitting that you're wrong. You I understood. But the point I wanted to make on that, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with what you just said. But is that the guy you want to be teaching you how to think? Is well, that here's the guy the whose advice you should be taking on how to figure out problems and 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 how to find right whys? Well, let's talk about the why though. Go, let's go back mm -hmm. to ruthlessness. Mm -hmm. He's walking the walk, okay. In the sense that if he wants his elite, his sea org, his his cadre to be ruthless and 
propagating Scientology. He wants to demonstrate that ruthlessness in everything he does. That's where that infallibility. He's ruthless in his in his sense of infallibility. Yeah, and but I, then he but then he's at the same time pretending that he's not ruthless. He's pretending to the public at large and to ECWW and to anybody outside the Sea Org that he's the benign, benevolent, you know, wonderful, giving. But that's not his person. audience. His audience is, is his cadre. It's the Sea Org, the people that are keeping him in power that will also in turn ensure he remains in power. Okay. I think that's why, that's where that paradox, again, it's another paradox of Hubbard, isn't it? I mean, but well, again, it is. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 it's one of those things where I mean, both right in the sense that... Yeah, there's a, there's a number of contradictions. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, it's, I mean, it, it's like, you know, as you're talking about this, you know, if you look at the first rule of being a totalitarian dictator, it's never get sick. Yeah. Because <laughs> any weakness, you know, you get a cold and the succession... No man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you can't have a moment of weakness yeah. when the cult structure is based on personal power and control over all of the aspects of the lives of your followers, both personally and professional aspects, you know, Hubbard can't show any weakness. He can't admit that he's wrong. And therein lies the ultimate seeds of the destruction of the organization, because the moment he admits he's wrong, um, you know, somebody might be taken, you know, be contemplate that that it might be time to take a run at the, you know, at the throne. And which is, which is, of course, exactly what happened. I was going to say, you know, David Miscavige, you know, this Mr. Broker, take a hike, pal. Exactly. <laughs> right? Well, just to get to the end point on this. So now that, so, so, so getting back to our timeline, Hubbard has issued the data series. He's got these managers in the Sea Org who have taken over Scientology management back from you know, he, his supposed resignation, and he's sailing the, the high seas, basically, you know, the area off the coast of, of Spain and Portugal, and uh, France, and, and, and within a year, a year later, December 1972, Hubbard and Scientology get kicked out of Tangiers, Morocco, just like they got kicked out of Corfu, just like he got kicked out of Rhodesia. Of course he blames it on the big conspiracies and all of that. Um, but he's advised that he can't stay in Tangier and that because if he does, he might be extradited to France where they are, at this time are charging him with fraud, which they end up uh, you know, finding him guilty of in absentia because he never showed up for the trial. Right. And this is the time in 1972, the end of 1972 through 1973, when Hubbard flew to New York and he stayed in New York for nine months, hiding, totally hiding, uh, in the country of his own birth, right back in the U.S. Yeah. And, so, uh, and that, was the, that was the famous picture that I love so much of the guy who looks like a homeless person with long ratty hair that hasn't been washed in a while and, a, and that sebaceous cyst the size of a golf ball in the middle of his forehead. Because he can't that's be, right. uh, he's too afraid of going to a doctor. With that's all right. He was, in a, yeah, he was in a really bad way at that time. And he only had two Sea Org members with him, two, yeah, two guys, uh, during, that, not, during those nine months. Now, interestingly, if you talk to Hannah or other Sea uh, Org members from that time, those nine months were pretty chill on the ship. They actually were able to get their work done. Things were going a little smoothly. So the people he had turned all these, these, this stuff over to, actually were able to run things to some degree without him around um, once he really 
got off the lines. Because when he was in New York, he was not communicating with the ship on a routine basis. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know when he was coming back. They didn't know what he was up to. And so they just got on with the business of what they were doing. And I find that kind of interesting uh, to speak to all the things we've spoken about in terms of L. Ron Hubbard and his character and, and nature and the workability of his, of his policies and whatnot. Um, because if the data series, I'm just going to say, if he was so, so brilliant and had this beautiful system that he could teach people that would find right wise and thereby handle any situation that comes across their plate, then why did that pattern of going into countries, trying to mess with them and being kicked out of them every time, continue even after he wrote the data series and trained people on how to use it? Seems to me that itself is a bit of a contradiction as to the workability of the data series on an immediate, very important level. If there was nothing more important than L. Ron Hubbard's safety and security. So, so what it anything, shows you... No. is how ludicrous it is because it doesn't address the the innate traits of leadership and humanity that make a good leader. So, you know, when he steps back, look at you have Hannah, you have Yvonne, Jan you know, there are superstars that emerge in Scientology at this time that are magnificent, charismatic leaders. Yes. And the right. reason they are is because Hubbard just gets out of the way. But he's right. trained them in a way that they have high degrees of initiative, high degrees of competence. They're all autodidacts, you know, self-taught. And, you know, the framework is working to some extent, but it's based on that that loyalty that he inculcated on the early days of the Sea Org. But, it, you know, so it'd be interesting to see if they were just left to their own devices based on their personal attributes relative to, you know, the data series, not, you know, just being in the background. And That's I right. think in a way it, it almost what you're explaining validates that in a way that, right. you know, there right. is, he was good at picking the right people as good leaders are, but it's almost, I think in this case, it was a cream rising to the top just because of attrition, whatever, you know, just the, there was a, the, the way, the very unique set of circumstances when they were cruising around the med that got these people to where they were. I mean, and this is the thing when I talk to, you know, anybody, Hannah, or even the, the, the newer folks like, you know, Matt or Matt Pesh or some of these folks, the, the one thing that you you got in the Sea Org was a high level of autonomy. I mean, you were given enough rope, right? And if you didn't hang yourself, boy, you could soar. And again, there's a lot of examples of that. As long as uh, the Miscavages and the Hubbards were just staying the hell out of the way. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's interesting. Exactly. Interesting. John P., any final thoughts here before we wrap up? Um, no, I think, you know, I think we've covered it. Uh, we've covered it pretty well, and I think we've got plenty more material to go in future installments. But, um, oh, yeah. But I think, um, you know, the, I think the, the biggest takeaway, I think, for people here is that it doesn't matter how good the, the, the quote, tech of the data series is, and it isn't actually very good, but even if it were, the inherent contradiction of Hubbard can never be wrong is enough to poison it and essentially poison it for all time. Exactly. So it can't, it can't be fixed because of that fundamental contradiction. And that contradiction does come from Hubbard's pathology, but it also comes from the inherent nature of a totalitarian cult or, you know, a totalitarian dictatorship or anything else. 
it can never evolve really it can evolve in levels of violence and levels of control but it can never can it never seems to be able to evolve in levels of optimization which is well, key you know, to growth. that's right and on that note it took me so many years to actually begin to talk about the data series in a in a critical you know fashion because it took me that long to, to, to get it unwound out of my own head because I had been so immersed in it and so sure of it. And then when I started learning about real critical thinking and actual logic, and I started learning about logical fallacies, which is actual problems with thinking, real illogic. That's what logical fallacies are all about. Sure. Not, not inaccuracies and in information, as, as we've discussed, Jeff, which are these out points. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a long time to sort of separate you know sift through the jungle of of stuff that Hubbard had put there that all these guys don't really know what they're talking about and and this is the way to think and this is how you analyze things and this is how you find wise for something and kind of getting that you know kind of moved over here for a while so I could sort of uh, what's the word um, take in this new information you know on, on logic and reason and and what you know, stupid people like Aristotle had to say about it, you know? That kind well, of thing, and also right? that it's okay to fail, right? It's inherently illogical to set up a system yes. where there's no failure, right? Because that That's means, right. you know, either you're not trying hard enough or the system is built with so much bias into it that you're going to predicate failure and avoid it, so you're not going to learn from your mistakes, right? And this yeah, is I mean, a it's thing. Like, yeah, it's like baseball, right? You know, a guy who's leading the league in hitting gets on gets at bat about one out of three, and yeah. he makes twenty eight million a year. Yeah. You know, the failure is in you know endemic to baseball. That's right. And that's just right. So but every but in Scientology, your... every single time you have an error or fail at something, it's on you. It's your bad, and you got to go to that correction division and get yourself sorted out because you shouldn't have failed. You should not have messed up. You should not have made that mistake. Well, uh, and the fact that the 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 solution is not localized, right? You know, if you're going to fix a problem, it has to be in the context where it occurred. How some bozo in some other division, you know, down the hall, down the street, you know, on the other side of the world, going to be able to help me remedy something that is very much part of, you know, like you always talking about the difference between Kia Cook and somebody down at Flag, right? Right. It's always going to be about you know, the, everybody that has some skin in the game and contextual understanding of what caused the problem. Hubbard makes no account for any of this. It's a one-size-fit-all system that has no room, no margin for error. You know, exactly. this is the other thing. Exactly. You know, if, I mean, so it's, it's a, you're a hostage to fortune. You're a hostage to failure. Exactly. So by, the way, by the way, one thing that occurred to me, just as this is sort of a random sort of diversion for just a second, um, is... You know, I wanted to just I just flashed on something about why do Scientologists, even after they've been out of Scientology for a long time, still defend this stuff? And and I think part of it is the complex. There's a confusion between complexity and effectiveness. Right. Yeah. If you look at just the data series, it's 700. The, the data series evaluators course. So the thing that was given to management, the, the volume for that is like 750 pages of drivel. And that's just a part of the overall management series, which is, uh, if I recall correctly, when I looked at it a few years ago, is like 3,000 pages of dribble. And that pales behind, beside the tech volumes of how to be an auditor, which is, I don't know how many thousands of pages of stuff. It's an and avalanche of dribble. <laughs> it is. And it's like, 
you know, but it's a normal human thing, and it's a it's a sort of a variant of the sunk cost bias to say I had to study all this shit, and it must work because it's set out in so much detail. And the answer is, you know, uh, no, alchemy is also set out in excruciating detail, and you know, so are all of these fantasies about you know the hollow earth theory and et cetera, et cetera, and UFOs and all sorts of other things. And just because it is right, just because it is, you know, described and beaten into the ground in excruciating detail doesn't mean boo about whether it actually works or not. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And I think I think this I think the process I described that I've had to go through over the last couple of years is part of 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 the difficulty of ex members because it takes a lot of mental gymnastics and work. Well, you had to relearn how to think. You know, I mean, we've know. had this conversation. You had to learn how to think again, right? Well, ex- well and, exactly. And, and, and it's just—it it, it sounds so, so basic. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's everything. I think it's everything JP just said, mm-hmm. and I think it's—I think it's some of what I was talking about as far as the X members go. You know, uh, and I'm not—and I'm—and in saying that, I know I run the risk automatically of being thought of as condescending and having an attitude problem, and I'm better than everybody else because I figured this out and they can't. Not my point at all. At all, I am no. not the, the 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 genius of logic or critical thinking. This is a learning process for me. All I'm saying is that I have gone through a process with this, and I don't know that other people have. You know, and that's that's all I'm that's all I'm saying with that. I'm not trying to. This isn't a status thing that I'm talking about here. Well, I think uh, we're also talking about you know comprehension as well. This is the other thing that that Hubbard doesn't really talk about. It's one thing to learn. It's another thing to comprehend. Right. So there's a there's you know, there's a certain rote capability and Scientology is very rote. It doesn't encourage you to comprehend because comprehension involves imparting some degree of insight or rational thinking around the subject matter. The roteness of Scientology practice is essential to keeping people believing in Scientology, you know, and it and it given the you know, one of the reasons that Scientology is such a difficult organization and belief system to extricate yourself from is the staggering complexity of this. Other groups that I've looked at, the dick, the, the dogma that you have to master is fairly minimal. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. So and it's you been commented so on as a, as that, that point you just said, JP is actually one of the reasons why people have said cult exit counselors and therapists have said why Scientology is so difficult for ex-members to get over is because of exactly what you just said with the, that, that complexity business. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the, the reality is, you know, life in the real world away from Scientology is much better because it's simpler in some ways. Yeah. It's ambiguous yeah. and confusing other ways, but you know, once you free yourself from this enormous knowledge base of shit that keeps you from thinking, you end up being in much better shape. You know, from from the standpoint of, of my work in investment management, you stay humble because there are general principles that you follow. There are general methods you follow, but you're out there naked every day. There is no rote way to make money in the market because if there were, we'd all be billionaires. Yeah, exactly. Everybody would be doing it. Well, and also the fact that it attempts to have an answer for everything. So how are you going to comprehend something that it has this universal solution? I mean, that in itself is patently absurd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true enough. All right, guys, we're going to wrap up here. Yeah, exactly. We're going to wrap up. 
one last bit here is uh, is the place we've left off in terms of the historical track here, the timeline, is 1973, Hubbard off in New York, hiding for nine months. Well, guess what he did in April 1973? He sat down and he wrote the Snow White program. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our next podcast. So, uh, so there's your hook for next time. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks a lot. I hope, for, I hope. Yeah. it's off to work. We'll go, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to thank both of you guys for, for taking the time to do this. It's been an interesting day. We had yeah. some hurdles to get over in order to do this at all, but I'm really glad you guys made it work. I really appreciate your time and, and your input on this. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Awesome, guys. All right, everybody out there, leave your comments, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And, um, you know, if after all of this you think that this is a, a good conversation, good stuff to be talking about, you're enjoying my channel, consider supporting me through Patreon. It is what allows me to keep doing crazy stuff like this. All right, guys, talk to you next week. Bye-bye.